Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. Proverbs 18. We're also going to be in 1 Corinthians as well. If you guys would mind going to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 along with Proverbs 18. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer here as we get ready to start. Lord, as we just come to you now, we just want to pray that you would teach, we would listen. Let your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct. We pray that you are glorified in every song of worship, that it's for you and not us. We pray that you're glorified in the teaching. Prepare our hearts for communion. We pray the saints are equipped to go deeper in you, and we pray that your salvation is presented. You teach, we listen, and we say thank you in your name. Amen. Continuing our study here through the book of Proverbs, we're going to finish up Proverbs 18 today, get more into 19, and next week we should be into 19 and 20. And if you haven't been with us, the way we're going through our study in the book of Proverbs is we find a verse there in that chapter that we kind of make the foundation of the study. And it's just amazing how all the other verses just kind of connect back to it. So with that being said, our foundation verse in Proverbs 18 for right now is Proverbs 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. There's a lot of key words there. And the first word I want to spend some time with is the idea of running. That concept of running. Now, some of you hate running. I mean, you literally hate running. And you would say if you had to go out and run, it would probably kill you. Maybe physically. If not, you would actually feel like you are dying. I like running. I enjoy going out there. I enjoy it. I have always enjoyed it. I like it. My wife absolutely hates it. Absolutely hates it. She made a comment the other day. She hopes that she never has to run another moment in her life. She doesn't like it. But here's the catch about running. You may hate running. You may not want to run. There's some times in life, physically, you may have to run. My wife, who absolutely hates running, I know if she's outside this summer and she's playing with the kids, if she sees a snake in the yard, guess what Dawn's going to do? She's going to run. And she's going to run pretty quick. She's going to set some records on how quickly she can run. We're in a race. Now, when I say we're in a race, I want you to understand this concept here that Paul's talking about. We're not in a competitive race against each other. Please understand that. We're in a race in the sense of running the race, the course that God has set before us. Paul was talking at the end in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He goes, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. This idea that God laid a race in front of him, a course in front of him that he then ran, and he ran what God had asked him to run. And you have a course laid out for you in life that you are supposed to run. And that's what God has asked you to do. Now, here's the problem is a lot of us don't know what race we're supposed to run. We don't know the course we're supposed to run. I've joked with you before that back in high school when I was in cross-country, we would go to some of these cross-country meets where the courses were really strange. You would do a lap around this and a lap around that, and you couldn't follow it. And they're giving us the course beforehand so we don't get lost. I never once paid attention. I was never going to be at the front. I was never going to be leading the race. I'd always have a dozen, two dozen people in front of me. I never had to worry about it. Here's the issue, though. In the race that God has given you, it's a personal race. It's a personal course. So if you come to me and say, hey, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. The Lord will lead you individually. I mean, I can tell you the overall generalities. If you're, if you're here as a husband, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's one thing. You can raise your kids in Jesus Christ. Be a light. Be a witness. Glorify God in all you do. There are generalities of what you're supposed to do. But your specific course that God has given you, 
I can't answer that question for you because the race that God has set before you is a personal course, a personal race for you. And this is what we're talking about here. Take a look at this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he continues this theme here, this idea of running in a race. Take a look at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Now, once again, this is not competitive Christianity, that there is a prize, there is a crown awaiting you at the end of your race, at the end of your course that God has given you. You're not competing against me. I'm not competing against you, but we're supposed to run with that mindset. I want to complete the task, the course, the race that God has given me. Verse 25, and everyone who completes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain an imperishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now he's talking about this idea of athletics and people that compete. They're competing for a crown that's perishable, that's temporary. Note what Paul is saying here. He's not putting down sports and athletics, but he's basically saying this. If you are willing to put that time and energy and effort to obtain a perishable crown, how much more should you put time, energy, and effort to obtain an imperishable crown? We have a tendency as a society to really elevate people that are willing to put a lot of time, energy, and effort into something. We hear the story about people in athletics that would go out and shoot so many shots a day. They would practice so many hours a day. And we even do that sometimes with our kids. They would do a full day of school, and then they'll go do a two-hour practice. Paul says, well, wait a second. If you're willing to do that, for something that is perishable, something that does not last in eternity. How much more time and energy and effort should you put into something that does last for eternity? How much time and energy should you put in? If you're willing to go out and shoot X minute baskets a day to become better, how much time should we spend in word and prayer and study and fasting for the Lord? If we're willing to go give two hours a day to this, maybe we should go do this for the Lord. Because we're supposed to look past the here and now and look towards the imperishable crown of eternity. Now, we're all running a race, though. Take a look at 26. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. Like it or not, you're running right now. You have a course, a race that is set before you, and you're running it. Now, here's the problem. Some of you don't realize you're in the middle of a race. You get up, you go to work, you come home, and you do the same thing tomorrow. That's your race. And you wonder why you have no joy. You wonder why you have no fervent spirit for something more because the race that you decided to run, to be quite honest, is quite sad. If the only thing in life I'm doing is get up, go to work, come home. Get up, go to work, come home. Guys, that's a pretty pitiful life. There has to be something deeper, something eternal that is pushing us on to something more. And some of you here today, verse 26, you are running a race. You're putting a lot of time and energy into it, but the problem is you're running with uncertainty. And you wonder why there's not something more in life for you. Have you ever stopped and asked the Lord, what's the race you want me to run? What's the course you want me to run? Where do you want me to go, Lord? I think sometimes we're afraid to do that because what happens if he takes us down a course, a race that I don't want to go? Maybe I don't want to do his course. I want to do what I want to do. There's a danger with that because when you run with uncertainty, you're putting a lot of energy out there and you're not getting anything back and it's going to feel like a pretty empty life. Look at the second part of 26. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. I've shared this story with you before one time doing this verse with my boys. We talked about the idea of punching the air, how much energy it takes. 
And they said, no, it doesn't. And I said, it does. So they all stood up and they started punching the air. And I spread them out enough to make sure they weren't punching each other. It takes a lot of energy to punch the air. And you wouldn't think it would. You would think that it would take more energy to actually hit something. No. And the privacy of your bedroom, and don't throw a shoulder out, go punch the air tonight, okay? And you're going to realize how much energy it takes. And that's how some people are living their life. They are running a race that they don't even know where they're going, what they're doing. It's uncertainty. There's no vision. There's no nothing. And they're fighting, and they're fighting the air, and they wonder why they're worn out, tired. Because they haven't sought the Lord on what race to run and where to put their energy into fighting. This is why Paul says it's so vitally important to know the race that God has set before you. I think of what it says in Proverbs, where there's no vision, the people perish. One of the questions I like to ask guys when they come over to their house and we talk, get to know each other a little bit, as the Lord leads the conversation, I'll usually ask this, what's the vision God gave your family? Because if God hasn't given you a vision for your family, what direction are you taking your family? What direction are you taking your life? Once again, you're putting a whole lot of energy into it, but if you don't have a direction, if you don't have a vision, it's going to perish. And then it gets us into 27, but I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection. Thus, when I preach to others, my, myself should become disqualified. See, what happens is we look at these athletes that we admire, the discipline they put into diets, the discipline they put into practice, the discipline they put into this. Once again... Paul's not necessarily putting that down, but he's saying, listen, they're doing it for something that is perishable, that only lasts in this life. Because how much more energy and effort then should we be putting into something that's imperishable, that's eternal? If we're willing to discipline our body for the attempt to win a prize, how much more should we discipline ourselves spiritually for something that lasts for all of eternity? So like it or not, you are running a race. Like it or not, every day you get up, you're going to run. Run the race that God has set for you. Run the course that God has set for you. If not, you're doing it with an uncertainty, and you're putting a lot of energy into nothing. And if you're going to fight, you're going to have to fight. Don't fight the air. Don't fight the nothingness. Have a pattern, have a plan of saying, this is what the Lord has called me to do, and this is the plan he has given me, where there's no vision that people perish. And I want you guys to know the race that the Lord has set before you. Don't be afraid of that race. Don't be afraid of that course. It's God's perfect plan for you. About a year ago, it was about this time a year ago, I was actually looking back into my uh, journal where I do some journaling and write down just things that the Lord has kind of given us to do. And I wrote some stuff about a year ago about us getting ready to go. Um, a year ago from now, in about a month in April, we were leaving to go to Mexico for a few weeks. And I was looking at what I wrote down. And I wrote down basically this. What am I doing? This is really one of the dumbest things I've ever thought about doing. I'm going to pack Dawn up and five children. We're going to drive across the country and go down to another country for a couple weeks. What is this we're doing? But then if you look back in the journal, last year, actually been a couple years ago, the Lord laid on my heart, this is what I was supposed to do. So I was being obedient to his calling. But about a month before we were getting ready to leave, there was this fear, this fear of this, the fear of that. And I was writing this about fear, Lord. There's so much fear. But there's this phrase that Dawn and I use in our marriage a lot, and we got it from Corrie ten Boom. If you've never studied out Corrie ten Boom, amazing story of a woman that went through the Holocaust there. But she has this phrase that she uses. says, there's no safer place to be than God's will. When you're in God's will, it's the safest place for you to be. The Lord had called us to go spend a few weeks down there in Mexico. That was the safest place for us. We were safer down there than we would have been in our own living room because that's where God called us. 
When we go up, and if we go to Dearborn, we go door to door in the Muslim communities, and we visit the Muslim mosques, which sometimes are quite interesting and a little intense, that's the safest place for us to be, because that's where God has called us. And we have always tried to keep that in the back of our mind. If the Lord has called us there, that's the safest place for us to be. The most dangerous place to be, guys, is out of God's will. So if you know the race, if you know the course that the Lord has given you, and you say, sorry, that race, that course is too scary. I'm going to stay on the safe place. You're actually in more danger. Run the race that God has given you. Do not run with uncertainty. Do not fight the air. Do what the Lord has called you to do. Now take this back now to Proverbs 18. This is why it says in verse 10, we run to the strong tower. Run to it. Run to it. And that's where you want to be is the strong tower. Now be careful with running to the strong tower. Don't take this the wrong way. This is not go hide in the strong tower. I have met Christians that wanted to go buy property up in the hills. They're going to build a little fort, stock up on food and guns and ammunition, and wait for the second coming of Christ. No. Go out there and be a light and a witness in all you do and all that you say. This is not Christianity. It's not go run and hide. The strong tower is where I'm in God's will and I'm safe and I'm protected. It doesn't mean I'm not out there being a light and a witness. It doesn't mean I'm not out there fighting against the enemy. But I'm always in the safety of the Lord. Here's the problem with the strong tower. Some of you only run to it when you've got a problem. You've got to learn to stay there. That's where the Lord wants you to be is with him. And what happens is we have a tendency to do this. Life gets really hard and difficult. So we run to the strong tower and we say, oh, I'm safe. And then what happens is I wander from the strong tower. And then I wonder, where did my joy go? Where did my peace go? Where did the protection go? Why well, I left the strong tower. Okay, I caught myself. All right, I'm running back to the strong tower now. And this is how we spend our Christian life. I'm in the strong tower and I'm safe and then I sneak out. And then I get in trouble and then I come back. If you've never read the book of Judges, I encourage you to read the book of Judges. It's over 300 years of Israel's history and that's exactly what they do. When they're with God, they're safe. And then what happens is they wander. And as they wander, the Lord says, I'm going to raise up this foreign kingdom to come and persecute you to get your attention. And as it gets their attention, then Israel says, oh, Lord, we're sorry. And they run back to God, and God then protects them. Then after decades, Israel says, oh, we're going to wander again. And they repeat this process for hundreds of years. Same thing still happens today. I see people a lot that they come back to church when things are rough and tough. They get their life settled again. Everything's going good. They're in the strong tower of God's will. And then they leave again. And then they come back again. I call them boomerang Christians. And if you've ever thrown a boomerang, when the boomerang comes back, what do you do? You duck. That's what you do because you can't catch it. It's hard. Sometimes they come and go, come and go, and you just want to stop and say, Lord, man, what do they need to do to learn to stay in the strong tower where there's safety in God's will? This is where we're supposed to be. I want to build on this, what the strong tower looks like. Go with me to Psalm 18. One book to the left, please. I want you just to read a couple psalms with me. And I want you to see the blessing of being in this tower of safety and refuge, being with the Lord in this place of protection. Psalm 18. Please note, being in the tower does not mean bad things won't happen. We're going to get to that in a little bit. Remember, God's definition of good is different than my definition of good. If I had my definition of good, this is good, this is good, this is good, the Lord says, yeah. 
But I have a different definition of good. So sometimes when these things come into your life that you don't deem good, they actually are good because it takes you deeper in me. And we're going to get to that point in a little bit. But take a look at Psalm 18 with me. Start in verse 1. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my strength in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation and my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So I shall be saved from my enemies. There are nine titles for God in those two verses. Your God is your strength, rock, fortress, deliverer, God, strength, shield, horn, stronghold. That's amazing. That's the Lord you serve. That's the Lord that says, come to me and be where I am at and be in this strong tower. What's built on this? Now go with me to Psalm 61, please. Psalm 61. Learn to run to this tower. Learn to run to this refuge. Psalm 61. Let's start in verse 1. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. Guys, that's where you want to be. Your heart is overwhelmed. Go to the rock that is higher. Go to the shelter. Go to the strong tower from the enemy. Stay in Psalms. Go to Psalm 62, please. One psalm over. Look at verse 1. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Jump down with me, if you will, to verse 5. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That's where it's at. Anytime you try to run your own race, you're leaving the strong tower of refuge and safety. Anytime you try to take a fight on your own, you're leaving the tower of refuge and strength. I have no idea as believers when we serve an omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, why would we ever want to leave his presence? Why would we ever want to leave this tower? But yet we wander and we leave it. Proverbs is telling us, Paul is telling us, Psalms is telling us, stay. When your heart is overwhelmed, stay right there at that tower of the refuge and strength of the Lord. What happens, though, when we go through these difficult times? Back to Proverbs 18. What happens when we're in this strong tower? But yet it's still hard. Take a look at 14. The spirit of a man will sustain him in sickness. But who can bear a broken spirit? Here's the thing about sickness, physical pain. You'll probably get better. But who can bear a broken spirit? If I asked you right now, you've got two options. Broken toe or broken heart. Which one are you going to choose? Broken toe. Broken toe heals. Broken toe, you take some Advil. Broken toe, you can keep your foot up. Broken heart, broken spirit, that is absolutely, utterly crushing. The body physically heals, but what about the spirit? See, some of you came in here this morning and you are struggling physically. It was a battle to get here. You have a new body awaiting you in heaven. This tent is falling apart. That constantly reminds us of eternity. Some of you came in, though, with a broken heart and a broken spirit. 
You would trade your broken heart and a broken spirit for a pair of crutches any day. When that heart is crushed, when that heart is broken, what do we do? I'm going to remind you of what Paul wrote about this in 2 Corinthians. You don't need to turn there. 2 Corinthians 4, he says this. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. How does that sound for what we're going through? We're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Some of you came in here today, and you are hard-pressed. You are perplexed. You are persecuted. But Paul says, guess what? You're not crushed. You're not in despair. You're not forsaken. The Lord will see you through it. Why does he allow it? If I'm in the strong tower of refuge and safety, I've run to it, Lord. I believe Proverbs 18.10. I believe Psalm 18. I believe Psalm 61. I believe Psalm 62. I'm in your tower, Lord. And these bad things are so happening. Why? Because God loves you so much, he doesn't want you to stay the way you are. He wants you to be in better shape spiritually. Now, that's not a fun lesson to teach. Once again, I go back to that idea where Paul said in Corinthians, I discipline my body and bring it in subjection. We want to be in perfect physical shape, but we don't want to hurt and we don't want to sweat to get to it. It takes work. I want to be like Jesus. Do you really want to be like Jesus? Oh, Lord, I want to be like Jesus. Okay. The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows, frequented with grief. The Bible says that Jesus was persecuted. Jesus was torn down. Is that the Jesus you want to be like? No, I want to be Jesus wearing the white with the beard and the blue sash carrying a lamb everywhere he goes. That's the Jesus I want. But if I want to be like Christ, I have to be willing to have the Lord come in and refine me. Now, if you're a note taker, just write these verses down and you can go back and read them later. Please remember, when God allows things to come into your life that you do not determine good, God's definition of good is different than yours. Because 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7 1 Peter 1, 6-7 says that God allows trials and tribulations into my life to refine me. To say, James, if you want to be more like Jesus, then I'm going to allow the fire to come into your life to burn off those things that are not Christ-like. Then he tells me in James 1, 2-4, James 1, 2-4, that I should glory in tribulation because tribulations perfect me, make me more complete in Christ. Then he tells me in Romans 5, 1-5, Romans 5, 1-5, that tribulation produces character. And character eventually produces hope. So what God has told me is this, that any time something comes into my life that I determine that is bad, God says, whoa, wait a second. First Peter 1, it's refining you to be more like Christ. James 1, it's perfecting you and making you more like Christ. Romans 5, it's making your character stronger. This is why you glory in tribulations. This is why when something like that happens, you actually stop and say, Lord, thank you. Because you saw something in my nature, in my character, that was not God-glorifying, that was not Christ-like, and you need to burn that imperfection off, and I thank you for doing it. Is it my definition of good? Not at all. But it's God's definition of good. And in the midst of that good, I run to my strong tower, I run to my refuge, I run to my strength, and I stay there. And you know what else I do? I rejoice. Because James tells me, glory in this. Peter tells me, rejoice. Because it's making me more and more like Christ. Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What are we rejoicing in? The Lord. You're not rejoicing in your circumstances. 
You're not rejoicing in your health. You're not rejoicing in your marriage. You're not rejoicing in your church, your pastor, your Bible, your prayer life. You're rejoicing in the Lord and the Lord alone. Everything else will disappoint you and let you down at one time. But not the Lord. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's how you rejoice in the Lord. What happens so often, what I see is this. People base their joy on circumstances. If life is going good, then their walk with the Lord is going good. As soon as life becomes difficult, they no longer rejoice in the Lord because they were rejoicing in circumstances. Be careful with that, folks. That's going to take you on a crazy roller coaster of life. Good days, bad days, good days, bad days. When you rejoice in the Lord, there's a constant joy that God gives you. And that joy is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That means if I don't have joy, I don't have strength. A few years ago, I was going through something that was really difficult. And I remember talking to Betsy about it. And Betsy just asked me, she goes, Jamie, do you have joy at this moment? And I said, I don't have a lot of joy. She goes, then you don't have any strength. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if you do not have joy, how can you have strength? So I'm asking you here right now, where's your joy? If your joy is in something other than the Lord, be prepared for a pretty rocky world. Because you're going to base your joy on everything else that's going around you. But if you rejoice in the Lord, the never-changing God of grace, mercy, and loving kindness, that's where your peace is going to come from. And therefore, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. So therefore, when the trials and tribulations of James 1, Romans 5, 1 Peter 1 comes, you stop and say, Lord, I rejoice in this. Because I got up this morning and I gave you the day. I trust your sovereignty. So that flat tire... I rejoice in that because you knew we were going to work good in some way. Lord, I rejoice in this. I rejoice in that because, Lord, I know you're moving and working. It's not my definition of good. And in your mercy, I ask you to take it away. But if not, Lord, I trust that you're going to help me through this. Paul, at the end of Corinthians, when he's talking about the difficulties he's going through, he asked God to take away the thorn in the side. But he then came to this conclusion, my grace is sufficient for you. So basically, my prayer is this. Lord, I'd like this thorn removed. But if you're not going to remove the thorn, then give me the grace to carry the thorn. Because some thorns aren't removed on this earth, folks. They're not. Some of you are dealing with a physical pain that's not going to end until you taste heaven. Some of you are dealing with an emotional, spiritual pain that's not going to end until you taste heaven. God, give me the grace to still glorify you through it. Because I rejoice in the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is my strength. So now as we get ready here, because I want to make sure we've got enough time for communion, just a couple quick points. What affects my joy then? Take a look at Proverbs 18, verse 20. A man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. Words affect my joy. Now, most of the time when we're talking about words in Proverbs, it's about how your words affect relationships with others. We've covered that a lot in Proverbs. Proverbs 18, verse 20 is how your words affect you. Take a look at 20 one more time. Man's stomach shall be satisfied from the fruit of his mouth. From the produce of his lips he shall be filled. So this verse is talking about how my words affect me. Now try to be honest with yourself. Because pride is deceptive. It really is. The words that come out of your mouth, how do they fill you up? I have met some people that claim to be Christians and absolutely everything that's coming out of their mouth is a whine, is a complaint, it's a criticism, it's a negative. It's like, my goodness, how can you be touched by the God of joy and walk in that type of heart and attitude? I don't get that. And then they wonder why their life is completely, utterly miserable. Because their mouth, their lips is filling their life 
with criticisms and complaints and problems, etc., rather than with the joy of the Lord. You can't control how everybody else talks around you, but you can control how you speak to them and you can control what you say. Some people get up in the morning and write from the first time they open their eyelids. It's negative for the rest of the day. Then they wonder by the time when evening comes why they feel like they have no joy, no purpose, no nothing in life because they're walking in a constant state of discouragement. Careful what you fill yourself with. Rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. What else affects your joy? Your friends. Take a look at Proverbs 18, 24. A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Surround yourself with godly people that are deeply passionate about Jesus Christ. You'll find your joy goes up. Because you're going to be constantly talking about, oh, this is what I read, this is what I studied, this is who I witnessed to, and this is what the Lord's doing, and I'm really struggling with this. Hey, let's lay hands on you and pray for you. And you surround yourself with these people that love Christ, and next thing you know, it just it's infectious. It doesn't mean you don't have friends that aren't saved. Please go on and be a light and a witness. But be careful of the people you surround yourself with that influence you. Now, this is where Proverbs 18, 24 is interesting. Because if you have King James or New King James, it says something like that. A man who has friends must himself be friendly. But if you have like an NIV or NLT, it actually reads a little differently. It says this. There are friends, in quotes, who destroy each other. There are friends who destroy each other. Same concept. Be careful who you hang around. What I'm seeing in the King James and New King James is I want to hang around those godly people that are going to take me deeper in the Lord. NIV, NLT is telling you, stay away from those people who are going to hurt you. Once again, folks, don't sit there and say, that means I'm never talking to a non-believer. That's not the point of the verse. Be careful of who you allow to influence you and your joy and your walk in the Lord. Be careful of that. Last couple passages here. What else affects our joy? Proverbs 19, verse 2. It's not good for a soul to be without knowledge. He who sins, who hastens with his feet. And he sins, who hastens with his feet. How many of us hasten to sin? We run to sin. We're in the strong tower of Jesus, the refuge and strength. And we see a little bit of sin out of the tower. And we're just going to run out real quick and grab it. We're just going to run out and we're going to hasten to that sin. And whatever sin that is, I'm just going to run out real quick and then I'm going to run right back to the tower. Guys, it doesn't work. You're going to hurt yourself when you're out there. I know people that hasten to sin and they wonder why they have no joy, no peace, anything in their life because instead of running the race that God set before them, running the course that he has laid out, they're running with their own feet whatever path leads them to the sin that they want to do. Stay away from that girl. Nope, I'm going to run right to it. Stay away from the alcohol. Nope, I'm going to run right to it. Stay away from those images online. Nope, I'm going to run right to it. Stay away from the gossip. Nope, I'm going to run right to it. I'm going to hasten to it. And what happens when you run to sin? Verse 3 of 19. The foolishness of a man twists his way, and his heart frets against the Lord. That foolishness of leaving the strong tower of Christ twists your way, and then you fret against the Lord. Verse 3, some translations say you get angry at God. You angry at Him. You rage against God. Why? Because you hasten to sin, and you can't blame yourself because you're too prideful, so you're going to blame God. You left the tower. You ran to sin. You ran to the problem. Don't blame God for that. The Lord has told us, stay in the place of strength and refuge and peace and joy. And when you run out of it, you're going to get bit. And you're going to then get angry at God. Years, years ago, there was a person that called me up. 
tears, anger, frustration, just lost their job, just got fired that day. They were upset. How could they fire me? Why did they do this? I have a family to support. I have things. I have bills. And then they're angry at God. Why did God allow this? Why did God do this? Why? So we talked. We worked through it. We prayed. They're just angry, angry at God. It's always God's fault. My life never works out. Everything bad always happens to me. You've heard all this stuff. Found out later that they brought illegal drugs to work. And as they brought illegal drugs to work, they found the drugs and they fired the person. That's not God's fault, folks. That's hastening to sin. And as you hasten to sin, you're going to get yourself in trouble. And if you hasten to sin, verse 3, you're going to twist your way. And next thing you know, you're going to get angry at God. I had a guy sit in my office one time, angry at God for getting pulled over for a DUI. Pretty sure God didn't make you do that. That was you. Be careful of these things. How often we get ourselves in trouble in verse 2. And in pride and deceitfulness, we can't blame us. It has to be someone else's fault. And ultimately, verse 3, it has to be God's fault. Because he allowed it. I chose it. Not just chose it, I ran to it. I left the tower of strength and refuge and ran out in the world on my own race, my own course, hastened to sin and foolishness, and am now suffering the consequences of it. But you know what? You still serve a God of grace and mercy and loving kindness that says, come back to the tower. And he brings you right back. Because we skipped over this part, and this is what we're going to finish with. Look at the second half of 24, Proverbs 18. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. A friend who sticks closer than a brother. Who's that friend? Go with me now, please, to John 15. John 15. We have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We mentioned earlier in the message, you're going to be let down. Your spouse is going to let you down. Your kids are going to let you down. Your best friend's going to let you down. Your pastor's going to let you down. The church is going to let you down. Everybody's going to let you down. But Jesus won't. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Take a look here at John 15. I want you to really think about these words. Start in verse 12 with me. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Do you realize you're friends with Jesus Christ if you're here this morning and you're saved? He's your friend. Now I know you know this. We sing the song. Jesus, friend of sinners, right? But do you really understand that your friend is Christ Jesus? I mean, he is chosen to be your friend. The all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who created the earth out of nothing, who decides eternal destinies of heaven and hell, has said, I want to be your friend. And we sit there and say, no, thanks. Think that through for a second. We sit there and say, no, thanks. But I've given you a tower of refuge and strength and safety and joy and eternal riches and glory. Sounds good, but I saw this race over here. I really want to try for a little bit, Jesus. So I'm just going to run out and sin for a while and I'll come back. How absolutely silly that is. 
absolutely silly. I got a quote that's my screensaver on my phone, and I'm going to mess it up here, but it's from C.S. Lewis, where basically he says this, we're like little children, little children, happy to make mud pies when God has offered us a vacation on the beach. We're happy just to sit in the slop and mire of mud when God has offered us eternal riches. And he says, and we fill our days with drink and sex and alcohol and this, where God has offered us eternal riches. How foolish of us to leave the tower and hasten to sin. Spurgeon wrote about this. And I just want to read this quote from him about being a friend of Jesus. He goes, now I have a question to ask. That question I ask of every man and every woman in this place, and of every child too, is Jesus Christ your friend? Have you a friend at court, at heaven's court? Is the judge of the quick and the dead your friend? Can you say that you love him, that he's ever revealed himself in the way of love to you? Dear hearer, do not answer that question for your neighbor. Answer it for yourself. Be it rich or poor, learned or illiterate, This question is for each of you. Therefore, ask it, is Christ my friend? I tell you, guys, there is a tower of refuge and strength awaiting you. There is a friend in God who wants to be with you. And we hasten to sin. This is why I wanted to finish with communion. I wanted us to be able to take all this and just give it over to the Lord. Some of you came in this morning and you are overwhelmed, as we read in Psalm lead you to the rock that is higher than you in Christ Jesus. Some of you are hastening to sin. You know it's wrong. You know what you're doing is wrong. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of conviction to say, Lord, I no longer want to. Some of you came in this morning and you may not even fully understand or know who Jesus Christ is. And I'm telling you right now, I'm going to make this as clear and as simply clear as I can. You are an eternal being that will live on forever. You truly will. You will live on forever in heaven or you will live on forever in hell. There is no other choices. God has opened the doors of heaven to you through Christ. He is a holy, perfect, just God. And he is sinless and perfect. And he says, if you want to be with me, you must be sinless and perfect as well. You stop and you look at yourself and you say, I am not sinless. I am not perfect. I am full of sin. God says, I know. That's why Jesus Christ will take the punishment and pain for you. He will take your sin and make you righteous, which is just a fancy word that means to be made right. And you can come now live in heaven for eternity because you have been made right through what Christ did. If you choose to reject this, you will still live on forever in hell. Eternal separation from God because God cannot look upon anything that is sinful. This is what communion represents. As we get ready to partake of this, this cup represents the blood that was shed to take away my sins, the sacrifice that took care of it. And, and the bread is going to represent the body, the body that took the pain, the punishment, the penalty that I should have taken on. Jesus took it for me. That's what it means to be saved. I am saved from hell. We are now born again. It's like being born a second time, a brand new person in the Lord. Paul says in Corinthians, you are a brand new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And if you have never done that before, today is the day of salvation. So what we're going to do is this. We're going to do two things. We're going to have a time of prayer, of just examining ourselves before the Lord. And then we're going to have a time to say, is this what you want? You can bring the the kids in if you want, Bob. Kids are going to come in here. Parents, we leave it up to you. 
Um, if you believe your child is old enough to grasp and understand what communion is, they are welcome to partake of it. We have an open communion policy at church, meaning that we don't have church membership. If you're here this morning and you want to partake of communion, we want you to partake of it with us. But as we get ready to take of communion, Paul tells us to do this. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's a time of self-examination, folks. If you're here this morning and you're saved, a time of examining, saying, Lord, what areas do I need to give over to you? Search me and try me, O Lord. See if there's any iniquity in me and lead me to the way of everlasting, Psalm 139. If you are here this morning and you're not saved, today's the day to say, Lord, this is what I want. Worship team, men that are helping with communion, if you want to come forward. Let's take this to prayer now and examine ourselves. Lord, Let your spirit speak to us right now as we get ready to partake of this. Examine us. What areas do we need to give over to you? What sin is there that's hurting our relationship with you? Lord, what lust, what pride, whatever it is that we need to give over to you? Lord, I also want to pray for people that are here that are hearing this and right now their heart is being touched to understand what it truly means to be a follower of you, to stop and say, I'm done living for myself and I'm living for God. I am following him and they're leaving all behind. Lord, I pray you're speaking to their heart right now and what that looks like. But we want to come to you just privately, quietly, Lord, now as we examine our lives. And as your word says, let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Take that sin to the Lord. Take that, that overwhelmness to the Lord. Take it all to him. And let him lead you to the rock that is higher than you. Lord, we give you every pride, we give you every lust, we give you every laziness, we give you every sin, we give you everything that's hurting our walk in relationship with you. And Lord, we just come to you and just lay down before you and that you would just lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, help us to just to come to this altar and just realize your grace, your grace, your mercy saves us from this. And Lord, we can live for you in all ways and all things. And we say thank you, Lord. And we lift this up in the name of Jesus in your name. Amen.